0: Well, back when we began our study of 1 Peter, we said that Peter wrote this letter to people who are believers. The majority of the New Testament letters are written to people who are believers. And he wrote to people who are followers of Jesus. People who have been set apart to do the will of God. People who are living as strangers, Peter said, in a foreign land. We are people living in a place that is not our home. And we understand that to mean that we're here as strangers and one day Jesus will come and then we'll dwell in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what we look for. That's what we long for as the people of God. But we also said that Peter wrote this letter to deal with the issue of suffering. Uh, People uh, were suffering. And uh, I think I said this, uh, there was some suffering maybe to the point of physical suffering, but the majority of the suffering that was going on in this time was what we might call social suffering. People were being persecuted for their faith and socially they were kind of outcast. They might not have been able to get work or jobs and, and just many different things happened. But nonetheless, the people were being persecuted. And Peter wrote to encourage believers as they face suffering. And this applies to us. This is not some letter that applies to people that live back in, uh, New Testament times, but this is for the church today. And so beginning today in verse Thirteen of chapter 3 here, Peter has reached his main purpose for writing uh, this letter. To teach, to comfort, and to strengthen persecuted believers. And beginning in this verse, verse 13, and going all the way through chapter 4, uh, verse 19, Peter addresses specifically the issue of persecution for being a Christian. Uh, The suffering Peter has in mind is... Uh, Not the sufferings we all experience because we live in a fallen world. We suffer, right? As a result of the fallen world. Sickness, death, uh, calamities, all those things are a result of a fallen world. But that's not the suffering that Peter is necessarily talking about. The principles from this can be applied to those situations, but that's not exactly what he's talking about. He's not talking about the sufferings of uh, living in a fallen world or the sufferings brought about by our own sin. Uh, Suffering does come sometimes to the people of God when they sin. But the sufferings that come our way for being a Christian, that's what Peter's dealing with. You profess faith in Christ, the persecution comes because of that. It's what Peter calls, in this particular passage we're looking at, suffering for righteousness sake. That's a key term that we see there. So if you're looking at your handout, the main idea is this. And, And I'm well aware, I'm like you. That word suffering, yeah. as much as I can get away from that, that's what I, I want to do. And you're looking at this main idea going, you've lost your mind. It's not my idea, that's what's in the text. and That's what we're going to see today. Suffering is the path to blessing. Suffering is the path to blessing. So look at verses 13 through the first part of verse 15 we see the first thing we'll look at is honoring Jesus as Lord. Honoring Jesus as Lord. He says in verse 13, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? The first thing we want to look at there is that word good. That kind of captures our attention. The word good is the same as the word good that was used in verse 11, and both are the same as the word righteousness that are used in verse 14. So both the word good and righteousness here, here's what we need to understand. Both these words refer to godly behavior. Living out the Christian life. Living for Jesus. Living in a godly manner. So that's what he's talking about. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? For Who's going to harm you if you are zealous for living a godly life? In verse 13, Peter's using... This is a rhetorical question to motivate the thinking of a believer. I don't want to insult your intelligence, but in case someone's wondering, what is a rhetorical question? That's a question that's asking you that doesn't require a verbal response. It's a question that causes you to think about what's going on. So it's a rhetorical question. When we first look at this question, we lean toward this idea. When we just casually read that, we just kind of miss the idea that's going on here. We lean toward this idea. If the believer does good and lives godly... He has nothing to worry about. No harm will come to Him. When you first read that, that's what you think, right? Just on the surface, that's what Peter's saying. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now my question for you is this. Do you really think that if you do good, if you love godly, you'll be liked by everyone and no persecution will come your way? Do you believe that? And that's not what this question is being presented to us. Today. In other words, people who usually treat believers well if they practice what's good, or you shouldn't normally expect harm for godly behavior. That's what we think when we read that question. Peter's not promising that believers would escape persecution and harm in this world if they live godly. That's not what he is promising. And here's what I want to make sure you understand. It would be wrong to think of Peter's question in terms that Peter is speaking of the present life as well. I'll explain that as we go. If Peter's not referring to the present life, then what is he talking about? Peter is assuring believers that nothing can in the end harm them if they continue to live godly. That's the promise He's making. Believers will suffer persecution now, but that persecution is temporary, but ultimate permanent harm for living godly will not come to the believer in the end. You will suffer now. But ultimately, in the end you will prevail. No harm will come to you for living, pursuing a godly life. In the end, you will be preserved. No harm is going to come to you. You'll be persecuted now, but in the end, that's what you look to. Believers suffer now, but that's temporary, but ultimate, permanent harm for living, for God will not come to the believer. Let me read you from the book of Romans to help us kind of connect that. Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 31. This is a passage that we're all familiar with to a certain degree. Romans 8 31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Listen carefully. shall tribulation or distress or Persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Verse 36, as it is written, For your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verses 37-39. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And listen to what he says next. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, persecution, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. And those words there are used to say, whatever you can think of up here, whatever you can think of down here, and everything in between, nothing. Nothing else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You will suffer now at times for being a Christian, but ultimately in the end you will Prevail. That persecution will never separate you from the love of God. Peter wasn't saying that believers face no opposition for being followers of Jesus. His point is that no one can ultimately, finally overcome believers because God will preserve us. He will vindicate us on the last day. It's going to happen now, right? But in the end, God will persevere us. That persecution that we suffer now can never separate us from from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So in other words, Peter is saying, your blessing is not necessarily now, but it's when? In the end. That's what we look to. Peter actually says, in spite of present persecution, the believer is to be, in verse 13, notice what he says, zealous for what is good. Zealous for godly living, even though I may be persecuted for that. that. The idea is that the believer is to be passionate about godly behavior. He's to strive for it with all his heart. Can I tell you something? That's the expectation of everyone who claims the name of Jesus. The Bible says we are to be zealous for godly living. We Hear the gospel. We repent as the gospel requires us to. And we trust in Jesus. And then there's this life of pursuing godliness. And not only pursuing it, but we're to be zealous. We're to be passionate about it. That is the normal Christian life. That's not the super spiritual Christian. Some of us are sitting here we think about this person in our life, and rightly so, that is really super spiritual, right? Man, he is zealous for Jesus. That's good. But the Bible doesn't give exceptions to the rest of those of us who look at them. All of us, every Christian, is to be zealous for godly living. And that excludes no one. Look at verse 14. So maybe getting that question in its proper perspective and understanding, notice what he says in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Peter says here that having a zeal for righteousness is certainly not a guarantee against suffering. Living good, living for Jesus, the Bible never says, if you trust Jesus, life will be a bed of roses, right? We, we need to quit telling people that. When they come to Jesus, we need to tell them what has happened to them, and we also need to be honest with them and say, listen, listen, Here's what you can expect if you follow Jesus. Your life is not going to be a bed of roses. The word but here does not provide a contrast, but it's it's a clarification in this particular context. Excuse me, it could be translated without a doubt. It's very likely that living a godly, righteous life will bring some sort of suffering. Verse 14 does not contradict verse 13. But even if, without a doubt, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will what? You will be blessed. Those who suffer for righteousness sake, those who suffer for their zeal for doing good, living godly, what is this? What is Peter saying? You are what? Blessed. Blessed does not suggest the result of happiness. How many of you have ever been suffering and been happy about it? I don't think I see a hand. You know, if there is one, we'll we'll get you some help afterwards. Uh. It's not suggesting happiness. When you suffer for being godly, you will not feel happy, right? I don't care who you watch on TV. When things come, you're not going to be happy about them. And that's why Peter's writing this, but you will be blessed. The word blessed here does not refer to happiness, but listen to me carefully. Are you listening? The word blessed refers to privilege or honor. That's what this word is talking about. Privilege or honor. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. It will be a privilege and an honor to suffer for living for Jesus. That's what Peter's saying. Let me give you a a passage from Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12 to help us interpret this a little bit better. Matthew chapter 5, <coughs> verses 10 through 12. In Matthew 5, 10 through 12, Jesus speaks about... This same kind of suffering. And listen to what he says. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For or because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's your blessing, Christian. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for the sake of Christ because yours is what? What? The kingdom of heaven, this goes back to what Peter says, this world is not our home. Verse 11, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Listen to what Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Where's your reward at, church? Church. In heaven, not here. Your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecute the prophets who were before you. Listen, what he says there at the end, they persecute the prophets who live godly. You're not going to get a pass. That's what he's saying. So how have believers been blessed when they suffer for Jesus? What's your reward? What's your blessing? It's a heavenly reward. Great is your reward that is coming in the new heavens and the new earth. God is going to persevere you. He's going to keep you till that day. Nothing will separate you, not even persecution in this life. So you live hoping in the future, even though you may suffer here. Now, from verse 14, the latter part of verse 14. <coughs> the first part of verse 15, there's three commands that are given to believers when they're suffering for righteousness' sake. Three commands. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ. Have no fear, don't be troubled, honor Christ. Some of you have translations that say, sanctify the Lord as holy. Peter's quoting from the book of Isaiah chapter 8. Here he makes an application from that particular text and what's going on there to his readers and our life as well. In Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah is telling the people of Judah, don't fear your enemies because they're they're fixing to invade, but don't fear them. Instead, Isaiah says, fear the Lord only and revere Him, putting your trust in Him alone to save you. Don't fear those people. They're coming. Don't fear them but fear the Lord. Don't be terrified of the Lord, but respect and be in awe. Put your trust in Him alone to save you. And here Peter uses it in a like manner as he warns Christians not to be afraid or to be troubled when facing enemies that are hostile to the Gospel. I always want to be careful when I say this because I don't want to be a doomsday prophet but as time rolls on, some of us in here have seen how the culture is turning more and more against the gospel and Christianity, right? Some of us in here are older, including myself, have seen that, right? It's progressive. It's some of you younger folks are seeing just something. And you're thinking, okay, but this thing has went from here to here, and it's gonna it's gonna continue. I don't be a doomsday prophet, but. That's going to continue being the case. We will be persecuted, and it's going to get harder and harder. But Peter says, and quoting from Isaiah, have no fear of them. Have no fear of those who come against you. Have no fear of unbelievers. The idea is not to be intimidated by unbelievers who persecute you. Don't let that intimidate you. Remember, they persecuted the prophets. Who are you? To be excluded. And then he says, Don't be troubled literally means don't be shaken or stirred up. You get troubled, what? What happens to us? We get all kind of stirred up and we our thoughts get all kind of messed up. Don't fear. Don't get all stirred up when persecution comes. In contrast, Peter says, notice what he says, don't fear, don't be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ. Again, some translations say sanctify or set apart. But in your heart's honor, set apart Christ the Lord as holy. Don't do this, but do this. What does that mean? How could Christ... Again, some translations use the word sanctify or set apart. How how could Jesus need sanctifying? In this context, the word does not mean what it usually means. We talk about sanctification as being... uh, being made holy. It's a progression thing. Instead, it means here to treat as holy or to revere or to hallow. Who? In your hearts, Jesus Christ as Lord. Revere, hallow Him, honor Him, sanctify Him, set Him apart in your hearts. Let me stop right there. Does that kind of indicate to us that professing to be a Christian is not just a casual thing? It's not just a flippant thing that we say, yeah, I trusted Jesus at some point in time. What does this verse tell us? That if we know Jesus, there's something about Him in our lives. We set Him apart. We sanctify Him in our hearts. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, it says, Hallowed be your name. It doesn't mean that we're making Jesus' name holy because His name is already holy. We're simply treating it as holy. Verse 15 says, Honor Christ the Lord as what? Holy. If we're to honor Him as holy and we follow Him, how do we honor Him in our hearts? By being what? Holy. The believer is to honor. He's to set apart Christ. Notice the next two words. The Lord. For the believer, Lord means that we submit to His control, His instruction, and His guidance. In other words, it says... Jesus, you've got it all. And again, as someone who would profess Christ, this this gives more meaning than just making a flippant profession of faith and getting your get-out-of-hell-free card. It means that your life is transformed. Something happens to you. Your life takes a different direction. Notice where we do this. In your hearts, honor Christ. Honoring Jesus is not just an external thing. Can I say this? Salvation is not a behavior. It's not just to modify behavior. You know, we have this idea if we can just get them to act right, everything will be okay. The problem is, people don't act right very long if they're not saved. We honor Christ in our hearts. Honoring Jesus, again, is not just external, but you honor Jesus where? On the inside. The idea is that of being a true worshiper of Jesus. That's what that's talking about. You are a true worshiper, follower of Jesus. True worshipers, they honor Jesus as what, church? H-O-L-Y. Holy. If Jesus is holy and I follow Jesus, then my life should be what? Holy. And you do this even, Peter says, when you're facing suffering and Persecution. When you do this, you realize that Jesus, not your human enemies, is in control of all things. He alone is Lord. He is the only one who is to be feared. And here's the deal. Honoring Jesus as Lord, submitting to and trusting in the perfect purposes of the sovereign Lord does away with fear and being troubled, and it yields courage and it brings boldness. You want to be fearless? You want to be bold? You want to be courageous? Fear, trust in the perfect, sovereign God who is in absolute control of everything that's going on in your life. Psalm 118 verse 6 says, The Lord is with me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? That would be a good verse to memorize, would it not? The Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Because Peter's already said, you'll be preserved in the end. Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Look at your handout. Point number 2. <coughs> behavior is evidence that Jesus is Lord. The latter part of verse 15 through verse 16. There's two ways this is evident in our behavior. The latter part of verse 15, "...to honor Christ in your hearts results in you defending Him with your words." Notice what it says. You're honoring Christ. Now He's going to give us two ways we do that. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. There's a word that leaps off the page there. It means the word defense. Always being prepared to make a defense. Defense. And listen, this word refers to a verbal defense. In other words, the mouth has to come open and words need to come out. In the Greek, here's your your weekly Greek lesson, the word is apologia, apologia. It's where we get our English word apologetics. It means to defend, thus the word apologetics. Defense. Notice the believers to always be prepared to make a what? A verbal defense of the gospel. It refers to the believer's need for constant preparedness and readiness to respond. The Bible says, as a person who professed the name of Christ, you need to always be ready to make a verbal defense of the gospel. How often? Always. And that response, notice what it says, is to be to anyone who asks you for a reason. The believers should be ready to respond to anyone. And here's some application. That means that every Christian should know to a certain degree the Bible well enough to explain to people what the Christian faith is and why we have the reasons That we believe the way we believe. It's not good enough to tell people this day and time. I just believe. I just believe. Well, what do you believe? Well, I just believe what the Bible. says. What does the Bible say? Well, whatever my preacher says on Sunday, that's what I believe. What does he say? I don't know. I I kind of watch the clock and wait for twelve to come, and then I leave. You know, (laughs) or I sleep. It's not just the job of Sunday school teachers or the pastor or extremely spiritual Christian. It's the charge of every Christian. If you're sitting here in the pew today and you're claiming the name of Christ, you need to be prepared to give a defense of that. It could simply be, I was a sinner and I was lost and I heard that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He lived a perfect life in my place and He rose from the dead. And I was told if I put my faith in Jesus that He forgives my sins and I'm promised eternal life. Now you can expound on that a whole lot because they're going to go, what? (laughs) Notice that the gospel is identified as the hope that is in you. It describes our confident faith in God and the anticipation of the future blessings that He has toward us. Chapter 1 verse 13 says, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you At the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope where, church? Set your hope where, believer? On the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're hoping in. And then in verse 3 of chapter 1, He calls it a living hope. And that means that hope is thriving even under persecution. Notice this hope is so countercultural. Notice there, (coughs) that believers will take notice of it. Look there, it says, Anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Peter assumes that unbelievers will see your life and be able to notice something different about you. Right? And what do most curious people ask when they, know, when they think you're acting kind of different than everybody else? What do they do? Peter says they... Ask for a reason for the hope that is in you. He assumes that people are going to be looking and they're going to go, Help me out here. You're different. Now, here's my question as a point of application. I think you figured it out now most of my application is question. I want you to ask yourself questions to apply this. Do unbelievers see and take note of your life? Do they? In the workplace, at school, in the community? In your family, do they, do they look at your life and do they take notice of that? If they don't, the reason could be that your life hasn't been transformed by the hope in God that comes in the gospel and the future heavenly inheritance that He's promised to you. That could be the reason. Although the believers to make a defense of His hope, Peter clarifies just what kind of attitude we're to have. Notice what he says. You make a defense, right? Which means we got to do what, church? We've got to open our mouth and, and words come out because we, we know the Bible relatively well. We, we pay attention in Sunday school. We listen to the preaching of the Word. And we're, we're being um, growing in our faith and our understanding of the Bible. And the believers to make a defense of their hope. And Peter clarifies just what kind of attitude we have when we do that. Yet do it with what? Gentleness and respect. The attitude is to be one that is humble and courteous and not prideful. You don't look at people who are lost and look down your nose at them going, Hey, I'm a, I'm a holy man and you're not. That is never to be the attitude that we are to have. We're to be humble and courteous and not prideful. We're not to be arrogant and haughty. You know what that does to your witness? Man, that guy will cut you off in a heartbeat. He'll have nothing to hear of what you have to say. If you plan on witnessing like that, you're better off not opening your mouth and doing harm to the gospel. Listen, you're not in this to defend the gospel to win an argument. Because when you win the argument and you walk away, what's the result? You want an argument and a guy walks away lost. There's no worth in winning an argument and losing the opportunity to represent Christ well. The second result of honoring Christ in our hearts is living for Him with our lives. Notice it says, have a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who... Excuse me, revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Have a good conscience. This the idea here is it's the human sense that God gives to every person to warn them that they're what? You're doing wrong. Your conscience either does what? It accuses you, right? Or it excuses you. When Peter speaks of a good conscience, he's referring to the relationship that you have with Jesus. They live in Jesus' presence in all they do. All they do. A good conscience is essential for effectively witnessing and defending the gospel in at least two ways. One, it results in the believer when defending his hope, doing so without Revenge and anger. That's what he just talked about. And secondly, it gives credibility to your claim of a transformed life. A good conscience. Living, knowing, and living in response to what the Bible calls you to do as a believer. It gives credibility to your claim. In other words, if you know that you're covering sin in your own life instead of confessing and forsaking it, then I think Peter may be telling to, saying to us, please be quiet about your claim to be a Christian. Just be quiet about it. If that's you don't have a good conscience. If you're not living in a godly manner. And here's some application. <coughs> do people, and I think I said this earlier, the people you work with, people at school, people in the community, people in your family, listen to me, do they hear you claim to be a Christian, but they see you, your life living something completely in opposition to that. Lost people are watching your behavior even when you don't realize it. Can I tell you something? The first time you ever open your mouth and say you're a Christian, guess what? You are a marked person and they will watch your life. And what are they looking for? The first mistake that comes. And we will make them, right? Do people look at your life Do they see it consistent with your claim to be a Christian? Second, if you're zealous for what is good, especially when you're mistreated, it's a powerful witness to somebody. I'm not talking about being sinless, but rather about living obediently to Christ as the the direction of your life. And when you sin, again, you're confessing it and you're making it right with those whom you sinned against. That kind of righteous life is the basis of a verbal Christian witness. So if... You're claiming to be a Christian and you do sin at times. And it's hard to do to go back to that person and say, look, I've told you I'm a follower of Jesus and I truly am. Jesus is in my heart, but I sinned. And I've already repented of that, but I want to ask you to forgive me for that sin as well. And guess what they're going to do? They're going to look at you like, what? But what does that give credibility to? A transformed life. Two ways in which a good conscience can be obtained. Avoiding willful sin against God. And when we do become aware of sin again in our lives, continuing to practice immediate repentance and confession. Because you know what happens if you have sin in your life and you don't—you let that thing linger? It builds and it builds and it builds. Why should the believer have a respectful defense of this hope and a good conscience, verse 16, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be what? They'll be put to shame. Slander refers to evil speaking. Revile refers to threats, insults, or mistreatment with words. And notice slander and reviling are a result of what? Your good behavior, living godly in Christ. So living godly is going to bring some what? Some persecution. There will be those who simply can't understand why you act the way you do. Sometimes they won't like it and they will persecute you. So why should you keep your good behavior in Christ? Verse 16. Those who revile your good behavior in Christ, they'll be put to shame. Here's the deal. Someday, the Christian's enemies will be put to shame. That's the promise of Scripture. It's going to come. It'll either happen in this life when our good behavior exposes the lies of those who slander us, or at the judgment, when God calls them into account. Those who do evil will suffer, either here or in eternity. Live godly, live a righteous, godly life, and we saw last week that we're not to seek revenge because God is ultimately the one who what? Who will judge them. He'll either judge them now or ultimately. In the end, now last week, verse twelve says that the Lord, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That means He's looking at them, and there's judgment upon them. But don't forget what I told you from First Peter chapter two, verse twelve: Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good day. Excuse me, good deeds, and they will what? Glorify God when. On the day of visitation. Remember what that term meant? The day of visitation? It's when they see your good behavior and they're influenced by that and there's a verbal witness of the gospel to them and then God in His grace visits them and saves them. You keep your conduct godly no matter what comes, even when they speak evil against you so that your good deeds will do what? Glorify God so that when He saves them, He gets glory. Your thinking should not be this. And we're guilty of this. One day, those who harm me for living godly, they're going to get theirs. You ever do that? Yeah, you might as well say amen. You might as well shake your head. You'll get yours one day. We won't say that to them, and in our mind we're going, buddy, your day's coming. You'll get yours in the end. Is that what we should be thinking about them? That we want God to judge them? You're zealous for godly behavior because your behavior just might be what God uses to draw your persecutors to Christ in salvation. We should never think we want people to get what they deserve. How many of you want what you deserve? I didn't think so. We shouldn't want anybody else. Verse 17, quickly. Peter gives us the reminder for doing good. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter makes it clear. Sometimes it's God's will that we suffer for doing what is right. It was God's will that Jesus suffered for doing good, right? Sometimes it's God's will that we suffer for doing what is right. Some Christians experience more persecution than others. But all are promised if at some point in time in their lives they will suffer. Listen to this. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Indeed, That's a word we don't kind of use in the country, right? I never heard nobody say indeed. Of course. Absolutely. Indeed. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Did you hear that? All who desire, who have the bent, who are zealous to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. Write it down. It's coming. Peter says that Christians must not... Suffer for doing wrong, but rather for doing what? Good. You don't want to suffer for doing wrong. You want to suffer for doing good. That sounds kind of like what he said in chapter 2, verse 20. (coughs) What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Did you hear that? Blessing and gracious things when you suffer. You may be asking, why is it better to suffer for what is right than for what is wrong. Suffering for what is wrong will harm your witness in the name of God among believers. Suffering for what is right can lead unbelievers to faith in Jesus or maybe shame them for slandering you. And don't forget, part of your calling to salvation involves suffering unjustly. You are called to this. Notice it says, if that should be God's will, Christian, you're not experiencing suffering, nor will you ever experience suffering if it were not the will of God for you. That's hard for us to get our mind around, right? When you suffer for being a believer, most of the time we think, why is God letting this happen to me? He's allowing it to happen. as His will, but He has a purpose in that. This should bring us comfort, right? And you're going, No. It does when we combine it with Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. How many things, church? All things. Suffering in your life or living for Jesus works good. So how do we apply this? Here's what Peter's telling us. If we're struggling today because we're being persecuted for putting our trust in God who loves you as His child, remember, He's working all those things for good. And then ultimately, you're going to be blessed in the end, right? Because your reward is not here. It's where? The kingdom of heaven. Now here's my question for you as we close along with myself, would you examine your own life? Walking back through this briefly, are you zealous for righteous living, even when you're mistreated? Are you able to give a gentle, humble defense of the Gospel? That's a question you need to ask yourself. Do you fear Jesus above everyone else? And it's simple. If You can't answer yes, though, that there needs to be some adjustments made. Today. And then you'll be amazed at how God will mightily use you as a witness in a hostile world. Let's pray.